morning. I'd just like to welcome you to today's Spotlight event and ask you, first of all, to take notice of the fire exits. There's one behind you where you came in and another one over here. Um, and I'd like to hand you over to Professor Margaret Kelleher for our opening address. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning everyone, I'm Chair of the Board of the Irish Film Institute uh, and I'm particularly pleased to welcome you to uh, this year's Spotlight which is a key, I think, much esteemed and much valued event in our annual calendar. I think many of this audience know that last year we launched our strategy uh, for a five-year strategy uh, and in that strategy we had the opportunity to underline our distinctiveness, um, our uniqueness and our value and in formulating that strategy, we emphasise that part of our vision is, and I quote, to seek to be an inspiring creative influence and to promote a wider understanding of film culture and its critical importance. So you can see in that relation how significant Spotlight is for us. It's also important, I think, in underlining um, IFI's role as a neutral space for critical reflection and discussion on important and indeed urgent topics uh, and we'll see that I think throughout the day culminating in the discussion this afternoon on issues relating to gender equality and the response in our sector to issues raised by the Me Too and Time Up movements amongst others. I also want to say that in my day job uh, as an academic in UCD uh, I'm very aware from colleagues overseas and indeed students and um, how important the recordings um, of the Spotlight Day uh, are. So as well as having, I think, this really important space and physical space for discussion today, I think we are also giving really important resources for discussion outside this room uh, and indeed outside this island. So the shape of the day, as you know, uh, we'll begin with a review from uh, Dr. Roddy Flynn and Dr. Tony Tracy. We'll then move to a discussion of artists moving in image and the cinema space. And I think that in turn relates to IFI's continuing um, interest in forging alliances um, in different uh, cultural sectors. And I think it's going to give us an important chance to look at the importance of moving image work by visual artists, among other topics. Uh, in the afternoon, and we hope many of you can stay with us for the day, uh, we'll begin with a catch-up on gender equality, uh, beginning with Annie Duna from the chair uh, of the Irish Film Board, with an input also from Stephanie Cummey, an input from the IFI ourselves, uh, and a session moderated by Dr Susan Liddy. Uh, and then we'll finish, I think, with a really important discussion of artistic expression in a new age, where we look to the present uh, and, indeed, the future. But a moment uh, to look at the past. Uh, a key event in Spotlight is our annual review uh, and no better duo to do this for us uh, than Tony Tracy and Wadi Flynn. Tony is director of the Houston School of Film and Digital Media at NUI Galway where he teaches classes on film history and theory. He's the author of many articles in Irish and American film and congratulations to him on his short film, The Hunger Times, uh, which was produced for Ireland's Great Hunger Museum and pleased to say will be released online later this month in association with the IFI. Tony, with Roddy Flynn, is co-editor of the annual review of Irish cinema for the journal Estudios Irlandeses. And also to put in a personal plug, I'm very grateful to them for a wonderful article on contemporary Irish film from the national to the transnational, which they published in the journal Air Ireland last year, a, a journal on the topic of Ireland and the contemporary. Dr. Roddy Flynn is an Associate Professor and Chair of Contemporary Screen Studies at the School of Communications in DCU. He's co-author with Professor John Horgan of Irish Media Studies and with Tony Tracy of the forthcoming Dictionary of Irish Cinema, which will be published later this year and indeed a much needed resource. So I give you Tony Avadi. Mark and uh, hello everybody and it's nice to see so many uh, people and so many uh, familiar friends uh, and faces. So this is always a little bit daunting actually because um, you know a, a, any given year is, uh, is fragmentary and, and partial and a bit artificial really let's be honest. Um, 
And as I was saying from earlier, trying to capture what's happening at any particular moment is, is quite difficult, given the nature of, of the way film uh, is developed, produced, distributed, and so on. So it's always a, it's a bit nerve-wracking at, at what point you have to pull the gate down and say, well, what's happening with this film, or what, what's happening there? Um, nonetheless, I suppose uh, the idea behind Spotlight and what we've done over the last few years is try to suggest a theme, maybe, or um, take the pulse a little bit. So it, it is necessarily fragmentary, um, very provisional, uh, and really just a kind of a, an exercise in collation and a first pass at kind of trying to abstract tendencies or trends. Um, this year, uh, I thought it would be of interest and, and value to recognize that we are at a point of centenary and, and half centenary with uh, with two other Irish, very important Irish films, and to sort of tentatively suggest <clears throat> that these two films might provide some way of thinking about what's going on, or some kind of uh, cue. I'm also being a bit selfish uh, here in the sense that I want to sort of recuperate film history, and um, not so much recuperate, but bring it to bear, if you like, on the present. I was mentioning uh, to Joe Comerford before, that in watching Michael Inside this year, I was reminded of Down the Corner is, is, is a really interesting film. And we've been doing a lot of entries uh, in, in this dictionary recently, and it's been a real joy to kind of go back, a real joy to go back over that history that we thought we knew so well, and watch so many films that I think, uh, if not I've forgotten about, I've certainly been somewhat pushed aside or elided. So that, I think, will be a kind of a key uh, theme of, of, of things I want to say, is the notion of heritage and history. Um, and a sense of being involved in a tradition, and I think that that's, that's very, very important. Um, and I, I want to begin that, those comments really by alluding to this film here, um, which has been strangely absent in uh, our hyper-commemorative culture uh, uh, this year, but in fact the first Irish feature film, uh, Not was made uh, 100 years ago, and was released, uh, actually made in April uh, 1917, and uh, was released over a period of two years, talk about a long tail. Um, uh, in, in, so it's very difficult to actually pinpoint, although there was a, a, an actual premiere uh, in, in January 1918. Um, the story of Not Miguel is, uh, and, its, and its production is quite interesting to me. And again, as I say, I just want to sort of bring it up, one, to acknowledge it and, and, and acknowledge that we're in the centenary year in, in, uh, in, this, in this forum. Um, but also wondering about what it might tell us, or what it might uh, allow us to think about. I'm also inspired to think about it because of, um, and Margaret I'm sure will be very familiar with, Declan Kybert's uh, book that has just been published um, after Ireland. Uh, I hope I've got it right. And uh, Kybert is always a really provocative and interesting uh, thinker. Um, and he muses, if you like, on, on a kind of uh, the period preceding uh, the, uh, the, the cultural revival and the role of the cultural revival really in imagining the nation um, and thinking about the role of literature uh, in relation to the nation. I'm inspired to think of Kybert because it was mentioned to me last year that perhaps thinking about national cinema was A, an old-fashioned idea and B, uh, a danger, potentially dangerous idea. Um, and that's been knocking around in my head uh, ever since uh, when I think about Irish film. We've suggested in the past a kind of a a notion of transnational cinema, um, both as a way of escaping a kind of a cul-de-sac of essentialism in national cinema, but also to account for changed both production practices, namely co-production, um, but also textual practices, namely films which uh, don't seem to belong anywhere, or certainly not located in Ireland. Strangely, uh, that notion of the transnational has sort of regressed a little bit this year in films um, that, that, that were released. And we have a kind of a reassertion, I think it's fair to say, of a strongly local, uh, if not national, whatever the meanings of that term might be, uh, kind of thing. So, uh, Irish cinema has gone in a, in, I wouldn't say a backward step, but certainly uh, taken a step slightly to the side from that kind of compulsive uh, de what I call de territorialization that we noted a couple of years ago. But that notion of, the national, of a national cinema really begins with this one. Um, and as I say, its story is, is interesting and, and a little complex, but, uh, it, but it reveals certain uh, kind of uh, interesting points. It's really a story about a producer, 
Um, and producers are really the lifeblood of the industry in many ways, and we'll come to mention that in another context in a moment. And an Irish-American producer called James Mark Sullivan, um, who was incredibly, incredibly for me anyway, from Beaufort in County Kerry, which is just outside Killarney. That's incredible because that's where the Calums came to make the very first Irish films in 1910. And in 1910, James Mark Sullivan came to Ireland to the commemoration of Wolf Tone's uh, death and met, met his future wife, a woman called Nell Sullivan, uh, from a very prominent, uh, now her, uh, prominent Limerick nationalist family. Um, he was then, he had become a self-made kind of lawyer in America. He was then made a, a, an ambassador, American ambassador, to suppress the revolution in the Dominican Republic. Um, this, there's some irony in this because uh, he then was recalled by Woodrow Wilson on charges and allegations of graft. And having gone from a position of imperial suppressor of local revolution, he then got on a boat and came to Ireland in 1915. And uh, on that boat, he accompanied um, O'Donnell widow. And he attended a, a famous funeral um, and fell in with, uh, with the revolutionary crowd. But as was uh, substantially pointed out last year, that revolutionary crowd were not simply political, but cultural revolutionaries. And a key element of the 1916 project, as has been well drawn out in the last number of years, was a cultural revolution, an imagining of the nation. And um, all that context is important in thinking about Not Miguel. That Not Miguel, um, as, I, uh, as, as I said here, represents, uh, on the one hand, maybe an opportunity to make money, at least that's the way he, he sold it, but also a desire for liberation, uh, an ambition to imagine into being a people through their representation. Um, and that's a line made from Kybert's book about literature. But imagine into being a people through their representation, of course, takes on an, an added valiancy and purpose when we talk about moving images. Um, it's a very literal imagining and representation. Now, the film Matt Miguel, uh, we don't have time to think or talk about very much here. Um, if, is it any good? <laughs> uh, it might be one of our first questions, um, and that's a very difficult question to answer because uh, it's, it's sort of fragmentary. But it is utterly charming, uh, and it has uh, that element that I think people of a certain generation and hair loss might remember feeling uh, when they watched The Commitments, or maybe later Adam and Paul, that kind of tingling excitement of seeing your own people, of seeing your own place. Um, and that's, a, that's a, an excitement that never leaves me. Of course, it was absolutely central to the first films that were shown and shot in Ireland, too. We've been writing about documentary this last week and remembering Mitchell and Kenyon and Lumiere Brothers and so on and so forth, local films for local people, as the IFI archive have, have taken that term. So that tingling sensation of seeing your own people uh, was crucial to the success of Not Miguel and remains crucial to the project of a national cinema, or would you prefer a local cinema? Uh, maybe that's a little less, a little less charged. Having said that, there was a national project, a political project underneath Mount Miguel, uh, alluded to gently, gently there. It was set at the end of the famine. It was written by Charles Kickham, a fiend uh, who had been in prison with Adonis Nasser. So it was not denuded of political content. That was important to it. But its primary appeal for the people who saw it was this tingle of seeing themselves represented. Um, and I think that that's a theme I want to sort of draw out. And, and, and explore in, in different ways in thinking about uh, Irish cinema this past year. Uh, sorry, I, I, just back to that. Uh, I did want to just point out that opening title card um, produced by the Film Company of Ireland um, by Irish men and women. And Irish, and, and, isn't that nice? Irish men and women. Uh, so that might be a good place uh, to begin. So we're going to take time back and forth. So, just, but, so the second anniversary then is um, for Rockland <coughs> Dublin, which, um, if anyone hasn't seen it, it, like actually Not Miguel, is available in its entirety on YouTube, weirdly. Um, legally or not, I don't, I don't know, but uh, a reasonably good copy. And in fact, I think it might include Paul Vaughan's um, making of documentary um, tacked on to the end of it. So it's obviously also worth taking a look at. Um, but that, that notion of kind of Not Miguel sort of calling into being, or art in general, culture in general, having the capacity to call into being a reality by sort of performing it on the screen, on the stage, whatever it might be, I think is also somewhat true of Rocky Road to Dublin. Um, 
And what I went to Dublin, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it was a documentary from 1968. My guy, an Irish uh, journalist living in Paris, um, working for the Guardian newspaper called Peter Lennon, um, who would occasionally come popping on back to Dublin for the Dublin Theatre Festival uh, in the 1960s to report on it, of course, in the context of the Guardian, in the, sorry, in the, in the, for basically the Guardian newspaper. And whenever he'd come back, he would be sort of told by his mates that like, things are changing here. And he'd sort of look around at the country go, it's very like the place I left, to be honest, I don't see much of a change. But for me, part of what's significant about Rocky um, Road to Dublin is the funding context um, in which it was made. Because it's almost unique, I think, um, I'm open to correction on this, but in the late 1960s in Ireland, documentary work was almost exclusively reliant for its finances on really three sources. Um, so direct funding from government departments, funding from private industry, so Waterford Glass, for example, do a lot of work, ESSO, probably enough, put money into, into um, some industrial films in some cases, although some very beautiful industrial films. Lee Marcus did some fantastic work with, uh, with Waterford Glass, or from RTE. So you have a dominance there of state or semi-state funding of documentary work, and I would argue that one consequence of that is that it's a tendency to kind of to blunt its critical edge. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case for that kind of work, but um, whilst there is beautiful work coming out of people like Lee Marcus, Patrick Carey in the 1960s, it tends to be in sort of relatively safe territory. It's art, it's culture. So overtly political content is broadly kind of eschewed in favour of that, you know, focus on the much less contentious territory of art and culture. But there remained obviously a public appetite within Ireland for politically you know, contentious or divisive work. But strikingly, it had to be externally funded um, for that to happen. And I, I think Peter Lennon's Rocky Road to Dublin is the most you know, pertinent and most kind of striking example of the conjuring of that kind of material. And it's funded um, not from within Ireland, but it's funded by uh, a guy called Victor Herbert, who was a friend, basically, of Peter Lennon, who was a, an American businessman, fully funded and by this individual. You see at the start of the film, if you take a look at it, Victor Herbert presents. Even after that film got made, it was really hard to watch it in Ireland. As in, very difficult to see it um, in Ireland. But she couldn't, it wasn't there. Um, I think the problem lay in its you know, central thesis that an independent Ireland had essentially taken one, or replaced one authoritarian institution, the British Empire, with another, um, that is um, the Catholic Church. And it's highly critical um, of post-independence um, Ireland. But one of the consequences of that was that it got limited to a single afternoon screening in the Cork Film Festival, and it was lucky to get that. Um, based on that, though, it got uh, a longish run, seven weeks, at the International Film Theatre uh, in Dublin, which I think now is the, uh, the Harp Bar for a long time, on uh, Dublin's O'Connell Bridge. Um, but essentially after that disappeared. Um, famously, RTE screened it, and finally kind of plucked up the terms to screen it. 38 years after it was first produced in 2006. But what's really striking about it is that, specifically to the end um, sequence, which is terrific, it's my favourite part of, well, it might be my favourite part in Irish documentary, I don't know, this two minutes even, I hope to screen it, but we couldn't quite get it to work, um, which is my fault, I should say. It, it, it imagines a much more progressive country. It sees a kind of a way um, further, or a, a way towards kind of, you know, progress. And the way it does this is just this long sequence of children running, which is filmed from a camera uh, mounted on a vehicle. But it's as emancipatory a moment, I think, as Irish cinema had basically uh, produced up to that point. So what both those films, then, as I say, have in common is this idea of cinema having the power to call into being the, the possibility you know, of, of something more progressive, something more emancipatory. So having said that, we return to, to Tony, that, what we wanted to do just for a second is just to kind of just remind us, I said, literally of what's gone on um, this year. We don't really want to say, I guess, an awful lot um, about these, but just to kind of go, this, by the way, is, because not everyone might have seen this stuff, but this, broadly speaking, uh, is what has occurred on our screens, small and large, feature and fiction film, over the course um, of the last, especially since we last did uh, Spotlight and Games. So in an interview with uh, the Evening Herald in 1918, James Mark Sullivan uh, expressed the ambition, from the cinema, very direct impressions of a country in all its aspects can be given to the world at large to be worthy of properly representing Ireland and other nations. And we desire to show Ireland sympathetically and in all its complexity, to get away from the clay pipe and the neat breaches, to show Ireland's rural life with pride in it, to show Ireland's metropolitan life, 
intelligently, depicting the men and the women of the 20th century. So it's pretty aspirational um, from the Film Company of Ireland. Um, and there was always an element of hucksterism about Sullivan's kind of project in some senses, um, as there must be uh, in, in terms of selling cinema. But that was a noble ambition. Um, and it's an interesting ambition to read over these films. Um, because I think one of the joys of doing this project every year has been for us. But it's really difficult now to simplify and reduce and be reductive about what is Irish film. Um, it's a many splendoured thing. Um, and even, of course, and we'll come up against this again and again, is what is the nature of film itself. And uh, I think we'll come back uh, to that in the afternoon, uh, or in the next session, or, uh, about, about notions of artist film and so on. We're not going to talk a great deal about, about television as well, but that's clearly uh, a, a grounds where, where very interesting work is happening. And the three uh, slides that we showed there, the three uh, shows, clearly are incredibly progressive in terms of gender in a way that, strangely, cinema finds much more challenging. Um, so that dichotomy between small screen um, stories and big screen stories is, is kind of an ongoing one. The exercise uh, of, of listing these films and fairly exhaustive, but not, you know, obviously not completely, uh, reveals one further, I guess, interesting thing, um, that if we look at the films, with the exception of Kissing Candies, which I haven't seen yet, but I know it's done very well at Toronto, um, and of course uh, The Breadwinner, which I also haven't seen yet, uh, but has also done very well elsewhere. With the exception of those two films, uh, the remaining eight or nine films are all directed by guys. Um, they're all more or less uh, featuring males in the, in, the, uh, in, in lead roles, with the exception of the Candies and obviously The Breadwinner. Um, but um, of the films listed, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of them, uh, of a possible sort of 15, uh, are produced by women. Um, so uh, the notion of representation in films made by Irish women and Irish men uh, is, is complex, but much more progressive on the, on the, on the side of, of producing um, than might be revealed by just storylines, I think. Okay. So we cited Vivian uh, in our review for a studio, so here's the clip that we cited that from. Women have to fight really, really hard to get the funding or, or to get support to, to do, say, a feature film. I know, because I know a lot of people who've done it. And it's just outrageous, you know, it's crazy, you know. I know it's hard for everybody, but, you know, it seems to be like, if you just take an example of the film board, I'm never aware of it now. They're kind of ashamed, I think, because, I mean, after this waking the feminists and you see what's happening with the plays, they know damn well that they fund all these films by young lads, you know, that are the same kind of film, you know, horror films or crime fiction or... And how, do we see, need to see another one of them, you know? Are they that interesting? No, they're not. They're actually really boring, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's other kinds of films out there, but they won't... They can't get their heads around it, you know? If maybe if they had a few more women in the panel, things might be different, you know? Yeah, I mean, just before Tony kind of comes back in, I just want to say I'm not necessarily endorsing those those views, and I particularly think the point, just to be fair to the film board, um, the point about the platform. As far as I'm aware, there are currently James Hickey's here. There are 25 employees directly employed by the Irish Film Board. 21 of them are women. Um, and Chief Executive is a guy. Um, there are seven members of the board. Five of those um, are women. 70 percent of them. Um, so I mean, Tony's going to talk more kind of about this, this issue, but I, I just, whilst I'm kind of broadly sympathetic with um, some of what Vivian is saying there, I just think on a purely factual level, the notion of the panel is dominated by men right now isn't true. I'm just just to make that point. Yeah. So I mean, I, I don't want to go into this too much because I think this is a subject for whole panels. So there's no need to sort of rehearse things again. But um, I suppose in terms of policy, you know, in, in the way policy influences outcome. Um, we did want to just gesture towards the, the policy initiatives of 2017. And as I said, I'm sure they'll be fleshed out in greater um, detail in, 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 the, in the subsequent session. Um, and of course, this, this is all generated by, um, by the Waking the Feminists and the whole idea of the commemoration of the centenary, to go back to 
not the Gael, and what are we commemorating, um, and whose history are we commemorating. Um, but what I did want to do is, is point also to the film board's um, uh, gender and diversity agenda, um, and, on, and sort of just, I guess, raise and emphasize the notion of diversity within gender, uh, you know, gender as a subset of diversity itself, and I, I guess that's something we just want to sort of um, look to a little, with a little bit more detail now. And this quotation from, from uh, the film board's own um, um, policy represent contemporary Ireland, and this, again, as I say, I'm sort of echoing, if you like, uh, James Martin Sullivan uh, here, uh, represent a contemporary Ireland involves uniqueness, originality, voice, and cultural diversity. In doing so, provide a breadth of story and serve a wide range of audiences. Um, so that notion of the, of the national, if Matt Miguel is attempting to imagine it being and call into being a nation, that is, a th I, think, I think it's worth reiterating that. And it's, it's worth um, reiterating the social and cultural value of film and television at all times. Because, uh, and I'll come back to this in my closing comments, I think there's often a, a slippage, and I noticed it in um, my own university, there's a slippage now towards things called creative industries. Um, and creative, creative arts and the notion of creativity has become an extremely important buzzword uh, on all sorts of levels. And I do sometimes have a concern that creativity is a kind of a smuggled, sort of neoliberal kind of concept that means everything and means nothing. Um, that it becomes sort of de-socialized and decontextualized and a kind of a fetish uh, without any point of reference. Um, so I, that, that's to go back to that notion of, of emphasizing um, the local. Um, I don't think it's necessary to go through these, but I'll just point at them because I think that people will know, either know about them or it will come up in, in a subsequent uh, session. Um, the point I did want to make um, about these initiatives, um, these extraordinary initiatives by the film board, is that I, I wonder in years to come, we have no idea what the impact of these will be, um, this uh, kind of positive discrimination. But it is an extraordinarily bold gesture uh, by, any, uh, by any standards um, to, to do this. I wondered, and the film board might be able to help me out here, but I wondered, uh, you know, what was, was there a precedent? Where does this sit in a kind of an international context, these initiatives for the development of uh, gender balance and gender parity in production and storytelling. Um, so I pulled up this report, Where Are the Women Directors, um, published in 2015, in fact, uh, and, uh, I, I, in, in the European film industry. Now, Roddy did this slide, and I said it looks like a pub quiz. Uh, so if you can tell me what these photographs have in common, uh, you, you'll get a, a year pass to the IFI. Who bought directed a film? Hmm? Yeah, well, actually, it's quite similar. Just something from different countries. Um, Roddy couldn't find a famous female actress from Croatia, um, so Goran will have to substitute you. Anyway, the report uh, goes through uh, these countries. Now, I'm going to make a fool of myself and forget where I live. All in um, Sweden, Russia, Austria, uh, Croatia, France, uh, Germany, Italy, and England. <laughs> and, and it does a comparative analysis of these, uh, of these countries uh, and their policies to women. But reading through this report, uh, you come up against these, so a relatively recent 2015 published report, you come up against these, these phrases in summary every time. No mandatory policy, I think that was France. No regulation specific to the audiovisual sectors in place regarding gender equality. No coherent policy. None of, this is a summary comment, none of the countries have a mandatory approach to issues of underrepresentation or diversity beyond gender equality. So I think that's really interesting. You know, I think it's worth saying congratulations and well done. We've no idea what those initiatives will do, what, what, how that will um, impact. But I think it seems fairly certain that, uh, or how that will rewrite Irish film history. But I think it's fair, fair to say that that intervention is staggering in its boldness and uh, directness and in a way that is uncommon uh, and unusual, uh, and represents a kind of a stepping up to the plate that is audacious, um, perhaps fortuitous given the, the, the larger cultural issues uh, um, 
you know, that ena enable that to happen and insist that that does happen. Um, but it will, it will be interesting to see how that plays out in the next, I say, what, five years or so, uh, in terms of, of those stories which imagine uh, the place we live in. I mean, it's funny because we have seen it, I think, already to a certain extent, what happens when you do this in, in television. And I'm not really clear on what it is that went on in RTE um, in the last years of, um, I forgot his name, previous DG, Noel Curran. Thank you, uh, Noel Curran. But Noel certainly talked about um, kind of one of his kind of legacy issues was an attempt to at least try and address gender issues. That's how you find it within RTE. Clearly, there are many um, issues yet to be addressed. But, it is kind of striking that, you know, if you look at RTE's kind of primetime drama series in the last couple of years, it's kind of called Bunko, and it's striking, it's like it's basically any human um, having kind of a great career moment. Um, but, um, like, that didn't, I suspect, happen quite by accident. Um, RTE's kind of history of kind of developing talent is somewhat patchy. Um, Stephanie Prisner was kind of a gift um, to them, you know, kind of some people already kind of built in. This is the person behind Canco Bunko with a built-in social media um, following. But it does suggest that there has been some kind of you know, work uh, in this area. And... Of kind of 
um, you know, high budget uh, action adventure blockbusters and this kind of art house material um, in there as well. Um, so, and it's, it should be said, those 54 films on the left hand side, a lot of them are war films. So, you might go sort of, well, you wouldn't expect to see women um, in there. But it's interesting that we make so many of those films in the first place, films which have got a built in, got a bias uh, against kind of, some kind of gender balance. But they also include films, those 54 films, that have got plenty of female characters in them. Slow West is in there, I don't know if anyone knows this, the Michael Fassbender Western um, from about 10 years ago. One of the lead characters in that, uh, she's, the, she's the MacGuffin, if you like, um, in the film. She's the thing that drives the young male character. She doesn't speak to all intents and purposes um, in the film. Slightly more including, surprising inclusion is Schindler's List, which I was like, well, hang on, that can't be right. Um, but it's again, it's 100 words per character. If you think about the way that language is spread um, across that film, may, there may not be a character, a female character at least, uh, who's, you know, who basically speaks that often. So what's the consequence of this? It's a banal but kind of obvious conclusion, worth, but worth you know, re-emphasizing. It normalizes a world in which most of the talking is done, uh, not just by men, but by white men, by able-bodied men, where other identities sort of basically disappear. And as a result of this, and we witnessed obviously we picked up this afternoon, the perspectives of male, white, able-bodied men acquire a certain authority um, on screen and become normalised. Not because they're actively identified as more important than those of the other, however that might be defined, but because the perspective of the other simply isn't expressed. It's just not there. It's, it's literally, it's not invisible, it's inaudible. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about growing up in the 1970s and 1980s in an era of Section 31, broadcasting bans on members of paramilitary organisations, when, as a child, it was very easy to accept the framing of all Republicans as terrorist madmen. Because there was simply no other perspective available. Unless you really, you know, went for looking for it, which, you know, as a 10-year-old um, growing up in North Dublin, Watching the hunger strikes, I wasn't really equipped, you know, to kind of do that kind of research. So I accepted. I'm, I'm still get. Yeah, when Jerry Adams walks into a room, I still have a free song of Sweet Jesus, the, you know, the beardy guy um, from the 1980s who's somehow kind of insane. And that, that's so, so that stuff matters. That stuff has a lasting um, effect. And there's a growing awareness. If you go to the next slide. Sorry, next slide again. Of the implications of that. Uh, probably, mostly, most of you have seen this today, but I think it's worth hearing parts of it, I guess. Very, lastly, uh, okay, so basically, despite the fact that I can't get an agent to represent me, and no filmmakers or, or cast directors will look past the point that I'm a traveller, uh, this is still a huge, uh, a huge moment for me, because seven and a half years ago, I was sitting in my house in Darden, in a little box bedroom in the darkness, contemplating suicide. That's no mess. And I felt, I thought there was no way out. And my brother Joe reached out to me and we talked for hours and he said I need something, I need something to latch onto, somewhere I can put this energy into and he suggested acting and I don't know why but it was just a light bulb moment and I remember coming out of my first class in the Abbey, walking down Abbey Street and it was like I was walking on a cloud, I just discovered something like uh, this world I never knew existed called creativity and it saved my life, it really did and like, our government is never going to demand about the mental health prices, our reputation inside about the government. But I think creativity can be a definite component to heal people. Um, and I want to dedicate this work to my father, who passed away 20 years ago this year through suicide. Just for you, Danny. So tell us what you really feel, John. Um, so, I mean, but the significance here is that it's not just, there are, there are, lots, there are other identities which are also, other subaltern identities which have been perhaps less emphasised, to put it mildly in Irish film. And actually one of the things that's missed about John Connors in particular, who's speaking here, is not that he won the IFTA for Best Actor, it's that, very unusually, he's a guy from Travelling Community who co-wrote a feature film. Not just one, um, but he's also, the, I think, the sole um, screenwriter on Stalker. And in King of the Travellers, Mark Connors, um, other film also with, with John Connors, there was an active kind of, you know, uh, kind of consultation for like, the Travelling Community to get some kind of yeah, input into the production. Um, on the um, uh, and again, those kind of exclusions, sorry, I haven't used you a long time, thank you. Um, like non-white people, put it non-white Irish, now kind of for 10% of the Irish population, this is from the 2016, um, 2016 uh, uh, census. But the 
question, I suppose, is where are those people in front of and behind Irish cameras? Like, other than Ruth Nega, who's there? I, I was struck this year watching um, Halal Daddy, which is kind of an inoffensive um, film, in the casting of Paul Tylock, um, who you may or may not be familiar with. Um, he's, he plays the, um, the wife of Deirdre O'Kane uh, in Halal Daddy. And Paul, um, Paul is of Sri Lankan um, extraction originally. But he is just deployed as the kind of the vaguely ethnic other in one Irish television drama and film after another. To my knowledge, he's played, certainly played, he plays Indian uh, in that film. Uh, he's played Kurd in uh, Fair City, and remembers uh, his character there. He played an Aztec um, in Father Ted, to be fair. Um, but he's just kind of, you know, routinely deployed. Like he's the go-to guy if you want someone who's not white Irish uh, in Irish in, in our cinema. Um, at the same time, if you look at the next one, now there's a lot of data in this, but if you just see the bit where it says disability in the middle, 13.5% um, of the Irish population are in some way regarded as being disabled, either physically or intellectually. Um, but again, they are rarely seen um, either in front of or behind the camera, though we do have at least one or two striking counterexamples for this this year, of which uh, more are on. So there are lots of Diversities, you might kind of say, broadly speaking, in you know to, to, to be thought about when looking at and reviewing um, Irish cinema. Um, and you know these films have looked at there's a bottling one way or another um, in the course of the last year. Can I just go back to that one for a second time? But I, I think there are some difficulties perhaps with the specific nature of them. And I, I don't want to specifically criticize, single out specific films for criticism, but, but I do want to talk about what is going on in some of these films. So Halal Daddy, I think, is, is an interesting one. It's a popular film, very entertaining, um, directed by Conor McDermott, uh, written by Mark O'Halloran, both people who've got in their previous works a kind of a history of working with um, the marginalised, let's say. So um, Conor McDermott's previous film was uh, Swan Song, the, the Ocky Byrne story. Uh, Mark O'Halloran, you obviously know, is the, the author of um, Adam and Paul, Garage, uh, Viva, um, for that matter. But what sort of strikes me about Halal Daddy is here's a film where the lead character is um, of Indian extraction, a guy from Bradford who's come to Sligo to avoid to evade basically an arranged marriage and his father is putting together. Um, and it seems like that, that would be kind of an interesting opportunity to, to look at Ireland through the perspective um, of, kind of an immigrant uh, into, the, into the country. But although there is some tension in the film, it's mainly between the, the main character, uh, right down with his father, because the film pro pro projects or describes race relations in the West of Ireland, in the West of Ireland, as almost entirely harmonious. Um, signaled actually not least through um, Paul Tyler and Deirdre um, Kane's uh, highly amorous um, inter interracial relationship. And Rykland's um, kind of the guys, the guys he hangs out with, um, his best mates are okay, a local Irish guy, and uh, Neville, who is of Afro-Caribbean um, extraction. I'm not sure how often you see that particular group of people walking down the streets of Sligo. Maybe I've missed something, but it's, it's, it's news to me. So, but the film does acknowledge ethnic distinctions, but they're mainly played for laughs. So there's a running gag in the film where um, the Colin Meany character who plays the father of the boyfriend or the girlfriend of, of Raghdan. Um, he repeatedly conflates um, quite different Middle Eastern and Oriental cultural traditions in a bid to curry favour with uh, Raghdan's father, um, Amir. And that's about as far or about as nuanced as that film gets in terms of kind of engaging with the negotiation of ethnicity uh, in Ireland. And in this handsome devil, um, so a, you know, a film again, very likable film, um, great cast, beautifully um, shot. Um, but for me, as a film which is about <coughs> the, the gay experience in Ireland, it's let down by its 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 curiously kind of dated feel. Um, I, I want to talk to the director about this. But I want to see, I want to understand what's going on, um, because it feels like a film from at least a decade earlier, or possibly a few two decades earlier. So, while nobody would suggest that you know, marriage equality, referendum aside, that LGBT identities in Irish society have become so mainstream as to become invisible, or that, especially in the light of recent events, that privately educated rugby players are paragons of progressive liberalism, 
Um, Handsome Dennis still seems to assume a kind of a wider social and moral milieu, which has not been prevalent in Ireland um, for decades. Um, I mean, it's depiction, for example, of a kind of a, a, a gay bar on you know, this dark, isolated street isn't close to the kind of, you know, a reflection of the contemporary gay scene in, in Dublin. And that sense, for me, of temporal dislocation, displacement, sort of undermines the contemporary uh, impact of the film. But if there are weaknesses, um, it would be remiss of us not to acknowledge that in one, of the, one area at least in the last year, there has been a kind of particularly striking and kind of progressive set of representations, and that's in the area of intellectual and physical uh, disability. So we should acknowledge Frankie Fenton's It's Not Yet Dark, about director Simon Tomorrow, who very sadly um, passed away uh, last October, or Alan Gilson's uh, meetings with Ivor, um, who offer a voice to those with disabling conditions. But I want to just talk a bit more, a bit more detail about The Drummer and the Keeper uh, and Sanctuary, because I think they actually go furthest in this regard of, of offering a voice to the subaltern. Um, I think, I mean, looking at The Drummer and the Keeper um, first, um, it's, two, it's two lead characters, Gabriel uh, and Christopher. Gabriel is uh, bipolar, has bipolar disorder, and Christopher has Asperger's. And it's through those um, two characters that Drummer and the Keeper invokes two really quite subtle discourses relating to people with disabilities. Um, the first of these is known uh, within disability studies as the medical discourse, uh, which identifies conditions such as Gabriel's bipolar disorder as imminent to the individual. It says basically, this is a problem that you have, you are, you are the thing we need to fix, and the way we're going to fix this is by basically, um, in his case, uh, drugging you. By contrast, Christopher's character permits some exploration of another model of disability, and this is the social model of disability. Um, and commonly applied to discuss physical disability, the social model suggests that individuals do not have disability but rather are disabled by their either built environment or the kind of um, the, the, the environment that they, are, that they have to exist um, within. And if you apply those, that idea to those who are mentally or socially divergent, which is, is how I'm trying to characterize someone with, with Asperger's, the social model suggests that everyone, everyone in this room, for example, occupies a space on a spectrum of states of mental health. So those lying on the more challenged or challenging end of that continuum are no longer regarded as being ineluctably different from everyone else in society. And the film offers quite a complex negotiation of those discourses. In the film, a bit to kind of go straight, so to speak, um, Gabriel with bipolar disorder um, takes, his, takes his meds. Unfortunately, um, the reason he's been encouraged to do this is so that his bandmates, he's in a kind of an up-and-coming Dublin band, um, can basically continue to work with him. But they find that as soon as he is taking his meds and he's healthy again, he can no longer play drums like he used to. So he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. <coughs> Christopher, the character with Asperger, Asperger's, his main life goal is basically to belong. And it's symbolized by his desire. He lives in a, in a, a home, I guess, um, is to move back in with his mother. But significantly, the film makes it clear that the bar to his achieving this on his 18th birthday is not, does not lie with Christopher, but rather with his notionally normal stepfather. And there's an even further nuancing of, kind of debates around um, disability and so the discourse around disability because it suggests that Christopher, even whilst he is seeking to kind of mimic in very common normal behaviours, also embraces Asperger's as a kind of key component of his identity. There's a politics to it. So for example, although Asperger's for many of us is probably associated with autism, Christopher, Christopher has no truck with those kind of blurring of identities. And instead, you know, sort of, he points to the guy with autism um, in the home and says, I'm not with him. He's not me. I'm Asperger's. And he says, because there's kind of a, a, a political kind of assertiveness in this. But perhaps the most dramatic example of this is this kind of you know, champion of the subaltern perspective. It's Christopher O'Reilly's uh, Sanctuary. Um, now, this is originally developed between 2012 and 2014 as a stage play. Um, by Galway's Blue Teapot Theatre Company. And this is a drama initiative which is focused on people, uh, for people with intellectual disabilities. And the cast of Sanctuary, for those of you who've seen it, is largely drawn from um, Blue Teapot's um, cadre of, of, of actors. Um, the basic story of it is you've got two characters, Larry and Sophie, um, both attending the centre for intellectually disabled. They're in love. Um, they basically put them mind, they want to get off with one another. Um, but until May of last year, some of you may be aware, this was technically illegal. 
um, unless you were married. Uh, you, under the 1993 Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act, the view was that people with intellectual disabilities um, could not give meaningful, meaningful consent. Um, and therefore, until the law was, was changed last May, uh, and, and therefore weren't legally allowed I suppose, to, to have sex with one another. So the, what, you know, what you have in Sanctuary is actually kind of a caper movie, where you, they, they basically try and figure out you know, how are we actually going to be able to get space to get together. And actually, Judge Perry in those terms, it's a minor triumph, I think. It's a really funny film. Um, and it is peopled by characters who are honed in collaboration with the actors who play them on screen. And although it's lighthearted in tone, Sanctuary makes a number of discrete political points along the way, highlighting a wider social and legal tendency to infantilize the intellectually disabled. And what's really significant for me about Sanctuary is the manner in which, in both its content and its form, it takes the opposite tack. tack. It emphasizes the ability of the protagonists, not least in its still incredibly rare decision to exclusively use actors who are actually intellectually disabled to play such roles. The final thing, before I go back uh, to Tony, is just to say that we have been writing, as we pointed out, a lot about documentary um, recently, and so I've been going back through the long history kind of Irish documentary making from really the start of the 20th century. Um, and it is striking, actually, that if you do that, the extent to which, especially I suppose since 1993, um, often film board supported works have actively grappled with and sought to represent um, subaltern uh, identities. Um, I mean, we could talk about representative, I mean, works on uh, the, the, the place of women, for example, in Irish society. Go back to Trish Adams, Hoodwinked from 1998, the Geraldine Creeds, um, Guns and Chiffon. Um, for the traveling community, the John T. Davis's um, Traveller. More recently, um, for, kind of, for migrant communities, for immigrant communities coming into Ireland, you've got Alan Grossman and Oni Bryant's Here to Stay, and Thomas Unrest, there's one from 2006, one from 2010, which are looking at the status of Filipino migrant laborers uh, working in Ireland. Uh, you've got Paul Riley and Nicky Gogan's um, CEU, which looks at the experience of direct provision, Ireland's you know, industrial schools in the 21st century, and the precarious position uh, of the immigrants there. Um, you've got in kind of representations of, of um, LGBT culture, um, Victoria Coloma's Identities in 2009, uh, Morris Mullane's uh, Stand Up, My Best Friend, which is a study of platonic relationships between straight and LGBT individuals, and Anna Rogers' really lovely short, and you get a chance to see it, um, Hold On Tight, which just asks the question, is it okay basically to hold hands with my boyfriend or girlfriend in public anymore, or can, how does one negotiate this? They're all three works, but the, the issue that I still I think have with them is that, and this is particularly perhaps true with regard to those films which are about non-white you know, ethnicity, is that the subjects who are being represented in these films are generally being represented from, sorry, by filmmakers who are drawn precisely from white Irish backgrounds. Now I don't want to get into what about right? but I think given the focus um, that we've already talked about, what we've talked about today, on whether on the, the initiatives that basically kind of pr pr produce or to promote um, a, a more e equivalent or equal uh, representation of women in writing, directing, producing roles, whether we should also con consider complementary uh, initiatives that address the absence of filmmakers you know, from different ethnicities, who have a disability, or who are otherwise socially disadvantaged. If we accept that the consequence of insufficient applications and thus supported projects from female production teams in Ireland is the, the result of that is you know, a dearth of women voices on screen, should we not also consider the silence of other others, so to speak? And this is a final comment actually, the closure of film base recently, after 32 years of work, which you know, have made available um, equipment and training on a relatively cheap basis. It's been particularly lamented because it might have been the first port of call for potential filmmakers emerging from within such communities. So that's kind of a close reading of a few of those films, and um, I, I, I've sort of run out of time now because I, I would like to talk a little bit more about um, Michael Insight, which I think kind of was the film that kind of broke through a lot. And maybe I just balance it by saying a kind of a contradictory thing in a sense. Uh, is that what we noticed about looking over the films this year was that there was a surprisingly, a surprisingly high degree of diversity in them, um, which is great. 
Um, and Ronnie's looked at a couple of examples there. Um, and the disability one was something that we were quite surprised by. Um, so that's really positive. That's happening without particular targeted initiatives or particular things. And that is obviously to be, to be encouraged and so on. The other thing is that, nevertheless, that diversity still tends to be filtered through a masculine consciousness. Um, and uh, Michael Inside uh, is, is, a, is a, a good example of that, although I think, to be fair, it should be paired with I used to live here, and they probably seem as a, as a, as a diptych, if you like. Um, but the very best of those films, I think, um, for me, things like Drummer and Keeper, but certainly Sanctuary, certainly Michael Inside, uh, certainly something like A Day for Mad Mary a couple of years ago, the striking thing about those films is that they emerge from communities, from workshopping, from patience, from time, from listening, from respect, from engagement. And uh, I say all this um, by way uh, of closure in relation, and uh, just noticing one other initiative of the film board this past year, which is this uh, report, which probably hasn't been discussed enough, perhaps, and I certainly welcome the opportunity, uh, as the report suggests, to discuss it within the educational sector. Um, but I did want to just draw attention to sort of key uh, findings and recommendations of this report. Um, and that was uh, mechanisms to take advantage of considerable future potential job creation in screened industries, a national strategy, um, and a strength in national energy for focusing on training and skills, um, and improved coordination and stronger links between training and education providers. And all of this is absolutely crucial, and I think there is so much in that report that's really good, and it's actually not a very dry report. It's very nicely written, it's very honest, very straightforward. But I did want to warn, if you like, against an over-fetishization of the notion of skills and training. If we go back to Nottingham, we'll see that the, that the camera man shot that was imported from England, and that the technical skills were, by and large, borrowed. The acting skills were all indigenous, the writing skills were indigenous. And in some ways, you might say that we haven't come very far in some, in some respects, and that we have always been very good at writing, we've always been very good at acting. Um, and, and there are other areas around that that have always required and upskilling, if you like. But we should not reduce our audiovisual output to skills and training. And I think what Raddy has said and in relation to the films that I have noted, we are at our best when we pay attention to the local. We are at our best when we pay attention um, to the diversities, uh, multiple diversities around us. And I would uh, mention then, just by way of acknowledgement, the very hard work done by Mel on, on Cine Aaron. Uh, and I had a slide with Cine Aaron and, and uh, Polos. And my, my, my point there really was, the, these other initiatives are very, very important in enriching the cultural tapestry of the lives we lead. And it's, it's in the cultural tapestry uh, of cinema and a sense of its heritage, a sense of our place, I mentioned down in the corner in relation to Michael Insider, is, is that is absolutely crucial, that we see ourselves in dialogue with ourselves, with our past, as well as with our present in making uh, our future. So we leave it there. Thank you. Um, many thanks to you both for a very fine agenda setting for more than one day. Um, but we have just 10 minutes uh, for questions. I have, I hope, temporarily mislaid my phone. So, Ross, I'll depend on you to signal when 10 minutes are up. Okay, so let me, without any further ado, open it to the floor. Hi, Susan. Uh, first of all, uh, thanks for the great presentation, of course, as usual. Um, Roddy, I agree with the, uh, the, the, sub, the subaltern comments you've made. I understand all of that. And it's it, it's uh, fair points, of course. But speaking um, just as an individual and also somebody who works with the Gills and with Women of Film mm. and Television Ireland, I just think for the record, I would just like to say, um, in case there's a sense that like gender has you know really kind of crashed through the barriers and we've all that sorted, I mean women are um, not a minority first of all in terms of numbers, yeah. so we do make up uh, more than half the, uh, the population, and um, progress is is it's making it's making its moves and it's going forward, but um, and the initiatives of course are to be welcomed from the film board, and more of, of, of which later of course, but. Um, at the same time, um, we're a long ways away from making huge definitive changes. So I think sometimes when we celebrate too much, there's the danger that we think, well, we've cracked that one. Now sure. what, you know, I just, that's just for the record. Okay. I, I, like, yeah, I, I heartily agree. Um, I mean, look, the fact of, um, like we did the, the exercise of just looking at those movies this year, um, something I was only doing last night, where it hadn't occurred to me to think about who's actually behind these. And it was kind of odd when I started doing those columns of um, who, are the, who are the directors of these things. 
Um, it's, it's basically guys. Um, it's still there. There's a second column we didn't mention um, about writers. Um, now there tends to be a strong relationship between writer directors in Irish cinema, but again, uh, it's basically um, it's basically guys. Uh, the only exception to that was in Damo and Ivor actually, where Jules Call uh, is one of is one of the two writers. That said, we're sort of a bit puzzled in trying to figure out what to make of the of the preeminence. It's actually it's it's, it's the preeminence of, of female producers. It's it's actually more so than Tony kind of noted. There's there's twelve films there, nine of them. Have, and yet it doesn't necessarily seem to translate, I, I mean, you know. I don't know, and I mean, this is something that's of interest to us as well, and, and I wonder, um, I'm, I'm, I wonder whether, um, whether there many, I don't know, but mm. would there be a question of junior producers, um, producers, leading companies, would there be a kind of a hierarchy there? The, I don't, I don't the way, the way I The way I did it was, cause like, I mean, I, I could have mentioned um, the breadwinner, I could have thrown Angelina yeah. Jolie in for crack as one of yeah. the producers, but she's an executive producer, one of about 15 people is listed as yeah. an, a producer, so I just took the ones who are listed as producers, which I'm, I'm going to, on, now it has to be said, on the imperfect source that is IMDB. Um, so I may be misrepresenting kind of how, the, the, how senior their status was, but like, their names I recognise, yeah, people like yeah. Rebecca Flanagan, yeah. you know, so I kind of think, well, like, she's going to be the senior. Is your, is your, is your feeling that, there, that you would have thought there'd be more of a link when there are female producers with, what's, with what gets out there, is that the point you're It might be a very crude kind of, a, kind of yeah. assumption, but I would have thought, yes, mm. there was a chance that that kind of, if it was only male producers, then I... Suspect I suspect the whole, the whole culture is more problematic and complex and nuanced than simply that one. Just to come in on that one, one of the um, points uh, that really struck me was your extending not just visibility but also audibility because I suppose one of the powers of the, the, the term subaltern is it's often what's hidden from view mm. as well and that key issue as we know in gender is often about visibility mm. but I also really welcome the fact that you've also changed, broadened that to audibility. I mean that po those polygraph statistics are really striking and the hundred words or more and one thinks already about if we were to do an analysis you know of, of, of an Irish film in that regard. Well, I mean the only point I wanted to make really was it's a very simple one which is that every kid who comes into our classrooms makes films um, regardless of their gender or background they're making films on their phones you know mm. and so we sanction a kind of notion of, of representation mm. and, but actually it's kind of false right so it, it, it's it's the it's the legitimizing of that nowadays is actually a really important part. So we need to, you know, that's what Roddy's saying. Like if we if we have this notion of hegemony and what you know what what is sanctioned, it, it it's not actually a struggle of production a lot of the time. It's a pro it's a problem of exhibition and sanctioning that it moves out of the phone mm -hmm. showing to two people and moves into a public space. So I see that as a really big challenge for us as educators and also as cultural custodians, is the, san is the sanctioning of expression. Um, you know, and narrowing that gap between um, not producers and non-producers, which is important, no doubt about it, but also about uh, who can, who's constructed as a consumer and who's constructed as a producer. And um, I, I, that's why I'm really excited about, say, Sanctuary Michael's inside in particular, and that kind of notion of a shared um, process of construction. And all I'm saying is to, is to extend that um, from gender, which is a really super and courageous, and I really want to be clear in saying that, it's really extraordinary, uh, extend that notion of, of, uh, of, of shared construction and shared consumption into what, if we're to do anything, it, sh it shouldn't be simply about creating skills. That's really what I'm saying. Um, to bring in another person for the audience. Yeah, uh, for a talented director's skill, I just want to say thanks, really fascinating. <coughs> I really want to see Knock Miguel as a film. <laughs> I mean, cause and effect is, is you know, really a difficult business. Like, you know, when you're talking about gender, you know, does this cause that or does that cause that? So very difficult. And, you know, what we've tried to do every year is 
try and get a snapshot. And we're kind of forced to do this because we write this review, like, and sometimes it's like, oh, Jesus, did anything happen last year? Like, you know? And so we sit down and we go through it and we just try and sort of pull up, oh, look at that, there's something happening there that no one has really made, made, made a lot of. Um, and the point I was making about Joe's film was that the, the first wave of our cinema you know, I really want to go back and watch it all again and again. I'm actually at it. I'm, maybe it's because I'm like getting old and like want to watch jazz, listen to jazz, and watch first waves. You know, because it's really, it's, it's amazing. It's actually amazing stuff that we, I think, have lost a little bit sight of, um, and that we're, we're in danger of constantly reinventing the wheel. But certainly, when we looked at the films in the '90s, which we've been writing about. And we saw this kind of um, desire to create the universal in the particular. And what that often meant was mapping um, stories, uh, local stories onto genre, international genre patterns. So a lot of crime films, for instance, or you know, rom-coms to a lesser extent. Um, and that's sort of funny to look back at now and say, wow, why were we doing that? Like, did, did we not believe in ourselves or something? Or, you know, did we require some kind of international kind of a re-endorsement? And clearly we did, because we had got that with, with Mile of Foot in particular, and we kind of thought, well, that's the way to go if we want to be recognized. And something has happened. Okay, it's post-Celtic Tiger, perhaps. Um, it's also to do with digital technologies. But we actually now believe in our stories. Um, and we believe uh, more and more in, in, in the richness of our story. So I think we've really matured as a storytelling nation, is the point. Um, but I think also the, the technical um, facility to make things cheaper is really, really important. And that, so people can take risks and take chances, if you like, that they mightn't have taken in the 90s because it, the investment would have been so much. And of course, the channels for distribution have changed. People are probably not making as much money and the profits are... I mean, I don't know about those kinds of things. But I think it's to do with confidence um, and I think it's also to, to do with the recognition of particular talents like Christian O'Reilly, you know, um, like Frank Berry and so on, who, who, and, and they will in turn enable other people. So I don't know why that's happening in particular, but I do know that those talents are being nurtured and, and, and encouraged, and, that's, um, and we have a really much healthier sense of diversity in the kinds of films we make. We make this, and we also make this, and we all, you know, I saw Making the Grade the other day, I said, God, I'm so proud that that came out, you know, and, and of course that's not the template for everybody. So we've become much more uh, comfortable with the notion of a variety of uh, cinematic and televisual expression, I think. Can I say, I, 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 I think Tony does know the answer, you've just, just, just said it. I mean, I, um, secondly, That's why I bring him everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, just, just, but just to kind of clarify, um, one, it is that thing that um, the technology is in everyone's hands. Everyone in this room has something which is probably a 1080 um, HD um, kind of camera. It's a halfway decent um, smartphone. Um, and as you say, um, kids now grow up with the idea that um, I can kind of point a camera and make a film. And you might just say, well, I'm just filming our dog, you know, kind of going for a walk or whatever. They're making, they're recording kind of audiovisual material for the first time. Secondly, there is clearly a kind of a, in the Western world, a cultural moment, um, which is um, where two things are happening. On the one hand, there is the forces of reaction as represented by kind of Trumpism, but there's this powerful response to that, which is legitimating identities, which, you know, which argue against that kind of way of seeing the world. Um, which means that um, there's a kind of a, a legitimation of stuff like, you know, kind of uh, M Michael Berry's work, or Frank, mm. uh, Frank Berry's um, Michael Inside, or even I was watching um, King of the Travellers um, mm. a couple mm. of weeks ago, the first time I'd seen it, and I came away thinking, geez, that's a mess. And I thought, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> and I was trying to reconcile those two things. Because it is a mess by kind of the standards of, even like, normative standards of kind of classic Hollywood narrative, right? But it's great crack. Um, like it's a it's a fun thing. I just went right. So there's a different standard at work here, um, and maybe that's the point. That standard is, is now being legitimated um, through you know just that ongoing work. So. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to cut it temporarily because we do need to keep on, um, on time. But I'm pleased to say that Roddy and Tony are with us for the day. So it is a accumulating conversation and uh, others will have the chance to come in. But given that, as I said at the beginning, this is a vital day for critical reflection, discussion, I think they've begun that for us superbly. So could we finish by thanking them again? Thank you.